For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Hey everyone, on this week's episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by Ray Barilli, the head athletic trainer of the 2019 Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues. Ray has spent over 20 seasons in the National Hockey League, worked two Olympic Games, and done countless tournaments with USA Hockey. You won't find a more experienced or respected athletic trainer in hockey. Ray's a great guy, and seeing him lift the cup this June was awesome. Enjoy! Stanley Cup champion, the athletic trainer for the St. Louis Blues, Ray Barilli. Thanks, Mike. It must be quite a feeling. I can see that you're still smiling. Has that ended since the season? <laughs> ended since the season. So one of my colleagues, uh, when I was down at our trainers' meetings, called it a, a perma smile. So it's yeah. uh, it's definitely a permanent smile. But it wasn't the only thing that's happened in the recent memory here, though, for you. That's been really exciting. <clears throat> yeah, it was. It was uh, my youngest son. Ted got married, um, and the, the story of that is, is pretty amazing. Um, that the, he actually got married? Well, that, that he, he got, okay. <laughs> no, that not that he didn't. Get, he, he knew uh, his, his uh, now wife, uh, uh, Connor, for a long time. They dated uh, when they were in high school, 10 years actually. So um, one of the things that uh, uh, for this, with the Stanley Cup was at, in the back of my mind, I knew that they were getting married. I knew what the date was. And it was after the cup final. And after we take the team picture, they open up the Zamboni gates and the media and families can come out on the ice. So it's very emotional. Uh, my wife and my youngest, Ted, were in Boston for game seven. My oldest, Casey, is in law school and he had exams, so he couldn't make it. But after we won, I gave everybody a hug and, and looked at Ted and I said, you know, I'm hearing that the parade is going to be on Saturday. We won the cup on uh, Wednesday. And so the parade was going to be Saturday and that was the day that they're supposed to get married and he looks at me and says dad don't worry we got it all figured out we're going to move the wedding till Friday and so he and his wife Connor moved the wedding to Friday so we had all of our families coming in from New York and Florida and all over North America for the wedding Um, the kids got married on Friday so instead of having 100 plus people in the church, there were 10 of us. There was no, no music. There was no flowers. There was no photographer. So everybody just used their iPhones. The, the maid of honor played uh, the wedding march on her iPhone, held it up, and they got married Friday. And then Saturday morning, we, uh, uh, my, my oldest son had flo- flown in for the wedding. Um, and not knowing, obviously, that we we're going to win the Stanley Cup, but we got did the parade, which was just an unbelievable experience, and um, had the reception, the wedding reception after the parade. So, with all family members in town, I don't know if you could have had a better couple of days. The, the timing, the timing <laughs> was everything just kind of fell into place. I mean, just it, it it's a, a sub story of the season how all of our everything with our team fell into place, but it all fell into place with Ted and his wedding. So well and. What a great guy Ted's wife must oh, be. That's Can you imagine yeah, switching the day around a couple days in advance? No, no Bridezilla here. She's, oh, she is phenomenal. And, and uh, you know, the, the fact that she would move her wedding date, you know, to a day earlier and not have all the, the fuss and, you know, all the stuff that the brides go through, which I, I, I can't say that I'm that familiar with it, but I, I can honestly say that I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased the fact that they were able to, uh, to make that accommodation for, for us. You know, for players winning the Stanley Cup's obviously the ultimate prize, but people don't take into account, though, for, the, for trainers, for equipment managers, for all the support staff. Is it just as big of a thrill for you guys to win it? 
Yeah, I mean, it is. We, we For us, for me, it uh, was my 24th season with the Blues. So, you know, at one point, you, you don't think that you're ever going to get an opportunity to win the Cup. We went, we went to a couple of Western Conference finals and, and weren't on the winning end. And that Cup just seems so elusive. And it's, it's something that you, you just, you never think you're ever going to win it. And then, you know, things happen in a season. All these little cogs fall into place and it allows the machine to start moving. And I mean, there's there's so many little when you look back at the season, there's so many little things that fall that fall right into place um, and allows us to start winning as a team and then allows us to make the playoffs and then allows us to continue to win and to continue to move through the playoffs. And it was just, you know, an incredible culmination. As a trainer, do you ride the wave of emotion like we do in the locker room throughout the season? Yeah, I think we do. I think, and that's part of the part of the process of, of becoming a professional and, and and being able to control your emotions. You know, you um, one of the things that happened, as most people know, is uh, in our series with San Jose, there was a hand pass and we we lost that game, and uh, and Chief did a phenomenal job of pulling everybody into the locker room, and there's emotions all over the place talking about craig berube head coach of the st louis blues chief chief yep yep. so chief pulls us in and he actually you know he said that the words that he said to the team were 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 fitting it was you know hey the 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 series isn't over this is the we're two great teams we're the better team but we're going to win the series and we just got to stay positive and focused and don't let our emotions get too high or low and we came out i came out of that meeting thinking that was the turning point for me in that Western Conference series was the fact that Chief had the confidence in our group that we were going to win the, win the series. And I think everybody had that same feeling. And it was, you know, again, your emotions could have been all the way down and we were able to bring everything back to a midline, to, to a neutral. And Chief did a fantastic job, not only with the players, but with the staff and, and his, all, his coaches and everybody. I mean, he, he was truly truly a leader for us. What I loved about it is that he didn't look for a cop-out to the referees for an excuse, for any reason to look back at their own play. Other than to look forward, find a solution, move on. And you saw it with some teams in playoffs that they went the other way with that. And I mean, when you galvanize a team, it was almost like even from the outside looking in, you could see it was just water under the bridge, go play hockey. And you look how the next game went. And you're right. That seemed like it was a turning point and a catalyst for the team to keep moving forward in playoffs. That's exactly it. And, and, Credit Jordan Bennington because you know Binner was uh, he was on fire. So you know that we we knew that that his confidence level was up and everybody else's confidence level after Chief's talk in the locker room, um, everybody's confidence level was was it's almost like I, I'm not going to say like we won the game, but it was almost okay. We move on to the next game and we we flushed that game and we just moved on and and everybody's attitude the next day at practice was as if we had won the game. There was nobody dragging. There was no one with their lip on the ground. Everybody was positive, and, and that was, I think, a real turning point for us. You've been a part of some really big stuff during your career, and not just in the NHL. You've done world championships. You've done the Olympics. Mm-hmm. How did those experiences compare to finally getting to a Stanley Cup final and then winning the whole prize? Well, uh, I did the Olympics in 98 um, in Nagano, Japan, and I did the Olympics in 02 in Salt Lake. Um, and we, Herb Brooks was our coach for the U.S. team in Salt Lake, which was just a phenomenal experience to hang out with Herb in the Olympic Village. He and I would go to the dining hall and sit and talk hockey and just talk about players and people. And it was just an unbelievable hockey experience for me, learning experience, to be with somebody that, that's as great as Herb Brooks was. Um, and then, you know, the, the, when you're in the Olympics, they, they, they tell you, and it's true, you don't win a silver medal, you lose a gold medal. And we, we lost our gold medal to Team Canada. Um, they had a phenomenal team. Um, we had a really good team, but they had they had really good players as well. Um, I think Marty Berdur stood on his head and, mm-hmm. and uh, was just a phenomenal goaltender. Uh, Mike Richter played great, but we just couldn't overcome uh, Marty. And uh, the Canada won the gold. And so... I, I hearken back to those memories of the gold medal game whenever we would get deep into the playoffs. Um, and uh, there's a calmness that actually comes about. You, you don't, for me, I wasn't, you don't get that emotional. You don't get that wound up. Um, you stay on task. You think about, you focus in on what you need to do. Um, you're running through scenarios in, in your head. 
you know, if this happens, what are we doing here? If this happens, what are we doing there? Making sure your supplies. There's a lot of things to keep your mind busy. If you if you don't keep your mind busy, then you'll just drive yourself crazy. Like you'll 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 become an emotional wreck. And I learned that at the Olympics in the gold medal game, and and I used that technique um, this year with the with the Stanley Cup final. Do you think that you know being an athletic trainer, you have so many things going through your head as you just alluded to? How do you keep track of that? You know, like you're in a position where you're actually almost an EMT out there. Mm-hmm. You are potentially at any moment might have to rush out and quite literally save somebody's life right. or save a limb or all these things that seem cataclysmic, but they can actually happen. Right. How do you train for that mentally? Well, we, we train every year. We, we go over um, at our meetings. We, we hold emergency uh, protocols and we review everything. We, you know, CPR and, and uh, you know, Stop the Bleed, which is a new campaign that's out. We, we're involved with that. Uh, emergency techniques, what's the latest uh, techniques that are used to, you know, out in the field for the EMTs and paramedics to, to rescue people. And we apply those in a hockey setting. So you're right. I am the first point of contact for the players is if there is an emergency situation on the ice, I'm the first person that gets there. So, you know, you have to work on your skills. You're constantly reviewing them in your head because thankfully we don't have to use them a lot. And, you know, but you have to stay sharp. And part of it is a mental rehearsal, the same as you would be as a goalie thinking about the game and using your mental imagery. I'm doing the same thing, but I'm, I'm applying medical techniques to, you know, the hockey situation or the hockey world. So, it, it's uh, they're very similar. I mean, their mental imagery is is key. So you're, you're constantly thinking about things that you need to keep an eye on, things you need to do, equipment that you need to check, stuff that you need to look at, make sure that everything is in working order. It's just the same as a goaltender would, making sure his straps is, and his pads and his, you know, the the strings and the laces and everything in his equipment is all up to up to snuff, so nothing breaks. In, in my realm, I'm worrying about equipment. Does you know, making sure our AEDs have batteries, making sure the oxygen is full, making sure we have a tracheotomy kit, making sure we've got all this other equipment in case of an emergency. So you're constantly thinking about that. Um, you know, we, we, we're always worried about something happening, but as long as you're prepared and you're mentally sharp, then things are good. You've compared this a lot to goaltending so far. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason why I've always enjoyed spending time with you because... You've worn the pads quite a bit in your life, and you've got a son that's worn the pads. As we talked about, Ted, he was a goalie also, played through juniors. Uh, And myself being a goaltender, we always had that in common. But a lot of people don't know this about you, that you've been a practice goalie for the Blues on many occasions. Been a practice goalie for the Blues. Um, uh, Mark Roof was an assistant equipment manager with us back when I first started. And Mark went in net, and I would also go in net. Uh, It was when Mike Keenan was our head coach and GM. Uh, when we had Grant Fuhrer who had a knee issue, so, so there were some days where we gave him a practice day and we would jump into net and play. And that, for me, it just kind of kept moving. And I would skate with the guys in August and get on, get get the pads on and let them shoot at me. And I think I was a good confidence builder for a lot of guys. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun, good way for me to keep in shape. And, and uh, also it gave me a better appreciation of the position. It, it made me appreciate... Um, the work that the goalies have to put in, the technique that's so important for goaltenders. And, and again, I, I kind of, my career in the NHL, 24 years, started with uh, Curtis Joseph and, and uh, John Casey um, and has obviously worked up to Benny Binner and, and, and Jake Allen. So um, you know, I've seen a lot of goaltenders in my day. But I think, you know, the one thing with goaltending is that I got a good appreciation for by playing is is the – the work and effort that has to go in and the technique and the style, the goaltending style, if you will, and uh, and and how the game, the, the position of goaltending has evolved over the years is just, you know, is incredible. You know, in the time frame that you're talking about, from when Curtis Joseph came in, yeah, jumping around in the net to where yeah. we are now, where everybody's so detailed in their approach, and you would especially know firsthand having such a good goaltender coach here and David Alexander, who is yeah. detailed down to the finest degree. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing how far we've come with it. Do you feel like you have a special relationship with the goalies, though, because you've done that? I think, I, yeah, I, and I try to to foster that uh, that relationship with the goalies because I, I think that I, I, besides a goalie coach, I don't know that there's anybody else on on, a, on the staff that thinks about the goalies the way that I think about the goalies. Um, you know, I, I look at them from 
from a, a biomechanical aspect and, and how they make saves and, and the positions that they put their bodies in and what potential injuries they might suffer because of the goaltending style. You know, we're talking about more hips, hip problems nowadays than we've ever, and I think that's part and parcel due to the, the butterfly uh, save selection. Um, and how young they're doing it and, now and yeah, the repetition of yeah. it. Yeah. And, and I think there's also, from a medical standpoint, there's a correlation between, you know, what we used to see with base, kids playing baseball and, and elbow injuries and kids, young kids having to have Tommy John surgery and young goalies having more and more hip problems. I think that uh, we, we might have to look at something down the road um, as far as Hockey Canada, USA Hockey, and how we how we let young goalies play the position, um, you know, and, and and also how we screen goalies, uh, you know, from an NHL level when we draft kids, you know, we're, we are looking now at certain things um, and in different anatomy and, and biomechanics as to, you know, are we going to see problems with this particular goalie down the down the road? So, uh, but. I think I've always had a, a, a soft spot for goalies. I've always uh, um, I consider goalie coaches probably my some of my better friends, mm-hmm. um, and we've had some really great goalie coaches here. I remember I, when I first started with uh, with Mike Keenan here with the Blues, we, we didn't have a goalie coach. We went for a number of years without even having somebody that looked after the goalies. And Keith Elaine was our first goalie coach with the Blues. Now he's the head coach at Yale University. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had uh, just, you know, again, a great run of people uh, that are goalie coaches. And you mentioned Dave Alexander. And, and uh, I, I think Dave was really instrumental in us winning the cup this year. Um, there, there was a uh, after Mike Yo had gotten fired, uh, chief uh, first day here, we're, we're sitting here at the at the mills, our practice facility. And uh, chief had asked Dave to give his presentation. Dave had a PowerPoint that he wanted to show the team, and uh, Chief allowed him to, to show this uh, th- this this um, presentation that he had. And it was really interesting in the fact that as a goalie coach, normally they look from the goal and, and they look out. Dave turned it around and looked as a, a goal scorer, how are we scoring on goalies and how are goalies getting scored on. And he has an unbelievable amount of data and unbelievable amount of video and he was able to put together this presentation that he gave to the team and it was basically how do we score in a nutshell and a lot of times I see players come out of meetings and they've got a glazed over look and then sometimes their their comments you know this is over 24 years they look at you like <laughs> I'll never get that 15 minutes back yeah and and where's the would, coffee where's the coffee yeah. you know it's, uh, <laughs> you know I need another warm-up kind of thing yeah. and and Dave After Dave's presentation, there was a spark that happened in our guys where guys were were sitting and talking about this presentation long after the presentation was over. And that was one of those things I had never seen that before. And it it was something that Dave was able to produce with our forwards and with our D and showing them all these things. And and Chief, it was all part of this buy-in. And Chief was bought in and um, Dave was bought into Chief. And it, it was that was like one of the first cogs for me this season that fell into place. And there were many more, as, as I mentioned, that we kind of go through to win the Stanley Cup. But there's not a lot of people that know about this uh, presentation that Dave did. But I think it was I think it was instrumental. What time frame was that? January? It was literally the day after Mike had gotten fired. Late December. Yeah. yeah. And we were we were here at the mills. It was, you know, whenever whenever somebody gets fired in an organization the next day, it's it's kind of a quiet day. There's not a whole lot of fanfare. And, um, you know, there's a lot of introspection and, and people thinking about what they've done and how, how are we going to change things. And, and again, Chief was like, said to Dave, hey, why don't you show that presentation? Go over that. And it, it just it sparked something in our team. I really think it had a lot to do with um, our turnaround. There was a lot of factors, but I think that that was part and parcel. I played for Dave in Syracuse, and we mm-hmm. went to the, to the Calder Cup finals. Yep. And we had the same thing. Yep. We had all that scouting, pre-scout, how do we score on this guy? And for me, as I was doing some media stuff through writing for NHL.com, I was seeing trends in the Blues play, how they were putting shots on goal, how yep. they were scoring. In the back of my head, I'm thinking... Dave's smiling upstairs right now because I know they're listening to him and it's yep. working because yep. there's a trend to this stuff. Probably makes me happy that I didn't have to play you guys when I showed up in Philadelphia in early January. <laughs> and I get to tell people that I was there for Jordan Bennington's first start. Yep. Was a shutout. It was against the Flyers. I was opening the door on the bench, you know, behind Carter Hart. But um, 
That's something that people don't realize about goaltending coaches, though. They don't just take care of your own goalies. They're right. very much involved, if they're allowed to be, in, in doing pre-scouting pre and yeah. teaching your players how to score, how yeah. to improve their skill set. Yeah. And Dave brought that to us. And I, I think that that was that's a critical critical uh, subset of, uh, of of things that we did was what Dave worked on with the with the sh with the forwards and the D in teaching us how to score and I think the, the guys took to it I think it was great we've talked about your relationship with the players a lot here mm -hmm. uh, but you have to have a relationship with the coaching staff mm -hmm. with management does it ever put you in a tough spot sometimes trying to bridge that gap between the two um, it, not really. I think if, as long as you're honest and open with everybody and everybody understands that you have the, their best interests in mind, um, I think that that's pretty straightforward. And that's kind of what I live by is, you know, I, you tell people, tell them every, all the information straight, you give it to them, you don't sugarcoat it, you explain to them, you know, what the goal is and what, what we're trying to do. And as long as you're honest and you care about people, I, I, it's not usually a problem. Has the evolution of this changed a bunch over the years? Again, you talk about mid-90s when you've got Keenan here. Were you the only trainer on staff? Yeah. Compare that with today. What do you have for support staff now with the St. Louis Blues? So when I first got hired by the Blues, again, Mike, Mike Keenan hired me. Um, he was the head coach and GM. Uh, he Ted, was everything, basically. He was everything, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Bob Barry was a coach with us, and Ted Sater was a coach with us. Ted still lives here in uh, St. Louis, uh, and uh, we, we visit uh, whenever we can. Um, so, yeah, it was myself as the, really not the head trainer. I was the only trainer. So I was the athletic trainer. You were the trainer. Yeah. And right. Terry Roof was our head equipment manager. And his son, Mark Roof, was the assistant equipment manager. And then uh, Mike had hired uh, the first massage therapist in the history of the Blues, whose name was Jeff Cope. Um, we called him Weird Al because he looks like Weird Al Yankovic, but uh, that was that was With a the nickname. curly hair and yeah, everything. That was, actually, Holly gave him that nickname. Oh, but uh, were guys giving him outfits at Christmas time? No, he just okay. he was he was uh, he was he was kind of out there, but he, he did a great job. And he he you know it's it's uh, it's a difficult position for some massage therapists because they they have to buy into the hockey culture, which is you know the late nights and moving gear and helping hang up sweaty stuff and. Um, so Weird Al bought into that. And so it was really just four of us. It was uh, Terry and Mark, myself, and Weird Al. And, you know, come to – there was no strength coach. There was no uh, no other ancillary support people. And now you look at it and we've got, uh, you know, Joel Farnsworth is our, our head equipment manager. Rich Matthews is our assistant uh, who came to us from New Jersey Devils. Right. Former head guy yeah. with the Devils yeah. when and, I was there, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew Dvorak our truck driver. And then we've got a, another locker room attendant, Mark Evans, who used to be a security guard for us at uh, Enterprise, and now he helps us out with day-to-day. -day. And then um, we've kept the massage therapist. Steve Squire is our current massage therapist. He lives in uh, Rochester, New York area. And now I have an assistant, Dustin Flynn. Who I uh, had in Peoria. Who you had in Peoria. Awesome guy. Yep, great yeah. guy. And we've had some, you know, again, it was really Doug Armstrong who brought in the assistant position for me. And you had Mike Hannigan, too, and who Mike, I had in Las Vegas. Mike yeah. Hannigan was my first assistant. And then, six. This is why it's called Six Degrees, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Chris Palmer was my other assistant right. who uh, was in Peoria for a bit uh, with us and uh, uh, when we had our club there. And now is uh, at Middlebury College in uh, Vermont. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've had three assistant athletic trainers. And uh, I think, you know, over time – your question was kind of like, what's the a little bit of what's the difference now? There's so much more administrative work that has to be done. There's as as probably with every business, um, there's more more paperwork that needs to be done. There's more uh, phone calls. There's you know as technology improves, there seems to be more work. Right. And the documentation of every right. injury is so thorough now, and it's right. all digitized. I'm right. sure you spend hours yeah plugging it into the computer. And that that's a lot of that's a lot of time and effort that we do. Right. So. Um, but we still have to maintain what I what I like to call is being on the factory floor. And Dusty and I work really hard at making sure that we're available for the players, and we're not sitting behind a computer punching in data points. And we we need to make sure we we get out there and we're uh, we're interacting with the players as much as we possibly can, um, and letting them know that we're there for them. So the, that's the really the biggest difference. You know, now we have a we have a full time strength coach. We have uh, uh, our. Uh, Former assistant strength coach is now the head strength coach with the New York Mets. He left us in midseason. 
Um, but so, you know, we have two strength coaches on staff. We've got the massage therapist, two athletic trainers, you know, four equipment managers. So the staff size has increased. Uh, and, and there are teams who are actually on the low side. There's teams that have more than that, yeah. you know, full-time people. They might have a physical therapist full-time. They might have, uh, you know, all, all kinds of different subspecialties and, and larger equipment staff. So we're actually on the smaller end of the staff scale. I've seen teams that I've been on because I've been on a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, four, I mean, ART specialist, yeah. massage guy, physio. Like, yeah. It's amazing the support staff. And that's just people who are on payroll. But even on right. game days, then you get an influx right. of even more people. Right. And you touched on how Weird Al had to get acclimated to the hockey life a right. little bit. Yep. And I want to touch on that because people don't understand the hours that you guys put in, especially on the road. So let's talk life on the road for a little bit here. Okay. Give us a typical trip for the St. Louis Blues. You show up at the airport, so a typical, load in. Yeah, a typical trip will usually start here at the mills and we'll, we'll have a practice day. Um, and it'll either be a full practice or an optional practice depending on what Chief wants to accomplish. And then we'll uh, we'll leave and we, we're we're fortunate. You know, my first couple of years, we used to fly commercial with TWA and um, we would, you know, you went to the airport, you went through with uh, everybody else and you know, security wasn't as tight back then, but it was still pretty tight. And you flew on a commercial flight. You hope to get a window or an aisle, and you got to the city, and you know you we you, you moved on. If now, you're a rookie, you got no chance. Now you, that. you got yeah, a middle seat. If you're a rookie, yeah. you're instantly given your your window it's, ticket to the veteran. That's yeah. You do that to kids now, and they look like, look at you like you got three heads. Yeah, they, they can't believe it. But that's the way it used to be. Yeah. yeah. And fortunately, at the NHL level, uh, a number of years ago, uh, everybody started to charter flights. So I, I'm extremely spoiled in the way that I travel, or the way that we travel, uh, and the fact that we you know we fly on a charter jet, and um, you know it's. Well, there's always some hiccups, but it's it's much better than, you know, having to, to travel uh, uh, regularly through the airport and with the airlines. So we are spoiled in that in that fashion. But so we would usually get to the plane. Um, the equipment staff uh, takes the gear, the hockey gear, and uh, uh, loads it on our, our equipment truck that's taken plane side, loaded in to the plane. Uh, we jump on. Um, we'll fly to the city. Uh, we'll land. Uh, we'll unload the equipment, uh, the equipment from the plane into the equipment truck, and every team has an equipment truck that meets you plane side and then takes your gear to and fro. So um, I will either go usually with the team. Dustin will sometimes go with the gear. Sometimes we'll we'll kind of go back and forth. We'll we'll split it up to make it uh, uh, less painful. Um, but one of us will go to the to the hotel, make sure the players are all taken care of. The other will go to the rink and help unload gear. Uh, so, and the amount of gear that we travel with now is, uh, I'd probably say about nine or ten times more than what we used to travel back in '94, '95. Um, so, you know, the the amount of equipment that is carried is is uh, it's it's astronomical. Right. So, in any event, uh, we unload the gear and then. Uh, Basically, if it's a um, if we're going to practice in that city, we'll have a practice. If it's going to be where uh, we have a game the following day, uh, we get pretty much the, the evening to get together, have dinner, uh, spend some time, call the family, FaceTime if possible, and then get ready for the next morning, which would be a game day. We usually get up around 5.30 or 6, have breakfast, um, head over to the rink, and basically wait for the coaches and the players to show up. So, And then the game is played at 8 o'clock. And then seven or eight, and then we basically pack up the gear, we move it to the next city, and we unpack it. So those are the late nights, is after a game when you're unpacking gear. Uh, typical when we land here in St. Louis post game, uh, or day, you know after a game, it's usually two o'clock in the morning. By the time you get home, it's usually three thirty, maybe four, and then you're back up at six a.m. to come back to the rink to get ready for practice day or or game day, whatever. So the, the hours are are incredible. You. you you find that you're just picking up sleep whenever you can. Uh, I've gotten really good to be able to sleep on the plane. Mm-hmm. So you, you catch a few winks and, and maybe take a little pregame nap before the players show up for the game uh, to try to get yourself mentally prepared for the game and, and also for the road. So it's a tremendous amount of time. The amount of time that we spend traveling and setting up and, and moving gear and getting stuff ready for the games, is it takes up a fair amount of the day. You learn how to be really efficient in life, though. I'd imagine how to be an efficient packer. Yeah. But you're really on call all the time, though. Right. I mean, this is a full-time job times 10 in that 
if somebody needs something and they're an NHL player, they're calling you at any time of the of the day, right? That's, that's correct. Yeah. So my phone's on, you know, 24-7, 365, including Christmas. So, which, you know, is, is the one, one day we get off during the season, but actually Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but still. Thanks to the PA. Thanks to the yeah. Players Association. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's still times where, you know, I've had calls where guys have cut themselves and done stuff and, and you're working on those days too. Um, there was one, one year that uh, we had a player was cutting a bagel and sliced his hand and it was in the morning and it was right when my kids were opening Christmas gifts. So you can imagine how, how thrilled my wife was when I had to take off and, and uh, go take care of that person. So um, that was when I didn't have any assistance. So it was just basically me, but there's uh yeah, you're, you're constantly on call. Uh, my phone never gets turned off. You know, if a player texts in the middle of the night, um, I'm going to try to wake up and answer it. And uh, I take the phone calls all the time. And it's not, you know, not just players, it's coaches and it's uh, management and, you know, ownership or whoever needs the, needs the help. That's why I'm here. What's most rewarding when somebody, I, I, from the outside looking in, I would think that if somebody has a major injury and you can get them back in the lineup faster. Yeah. yeah. Is that true to say, or it's, is it maybe something different that they that they really get back at 100% and feel? Yeah, it's not necessarily faster because, uh, you know, obviously we, we want to get back, we want players to get back, you know, as quick as possible, but as healthy as possible. And and again, no one no one makes it through a full season without some sort of minor injury that you're constantly dealing with. So if we can eliminate all the major injuries and and try to get everybody as healthy or as close to 100% as possible, then that, that's the goal. The, the, the thing that makes me the most proud is is really when a player uh, sustains a major injury and they go through the rehabilitation process with me and with the staff and they come back and they score a goal or they make a huge save for a win or they do something that, you know, helps their team succeed. That to me is just that I've got a smile on my face. And it may be a loss. We, may, we actually may lose the game, you know, but I know that that player – has come back, he's worked so hard and he had his opportunity and he scored or, you know, he, he you know, has worked hard and he, he made an unbelievable amount of saves, but yet we still weren't able to win the game. But it, it was, a, you know, a personal best for saves or something. You know, so those are the moments that really make me smile. Well, because you've had a hand in that. You can see a tangible force that you've had to be able to get somebody through something and power through it and get to a personal goal and do well. Right. Well, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's being able to help somebody reach that goal. Right. And, you know, I mean, the, the players the players put in the, the work for the rehab, and all I do is I guide. So if I'm able to guide somebody and work them, uh, you know, help them through a, a situation when they get hurt psychologically, they, they become depressed or they, they get down. It may not be full depression, but it may, they, they're, they're, they're not feeling well about themselves. They're not feeling well about their situation. And to be able to help them work through that and to get them on the ice and and to be able to score a goal is, you know, or, or have success on the ice for me, that's that's what it's all about. What can be frustrating from your perspective? Well, there's a lot of things that can be frustrating, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really general question. Yeah, but, yeah. but let's say um, like in terms of a rehab, what can be frustrating? If something's not going right or if if, uh, if a player's not responding as the way we thought that they were going to mm-hmm. respond. So, and again, uh, because it's a business – at the NHL level, you know, there's expectations about when a player is going to return from an injury. So if they're not able to hit those marks, that becomes very frustrating because the, the, the media and the public are expecting this player to be back at this time. And through no fault of the player or no fault of anybody else, they, their body just isn't responding as we thought. Um, Joe Blow Public might take eight months to recover from this, and they expect right. a pro hockey player back in three weeks. Right. So we've had players tear their anterior cruciate ligament and – and return to play, and you know, you're reading in the media, or the, you know, uh, I, I'm not online, but people will tell me that you know they're bashing this player because they think he's slow and he's missed a step or whatever. Meanwhile, they they don't understand that he's put in an unbelievable amount of time rehabbing himself from this major knee surgery um, that some people never recover from, but yet you know he, he's considered to be a, a half step slow, and then by the end of the season, you know, he's back up to full speed or better, and those are the again the situations that I can go look back and smile at, and say you know I, I I was able to assist that player in getting better and to to be able to get a new contract to be able to help have team success. That's 
that's what it's all about. Has medical technology and training technology evolved to the point, though, that it is really predictable how most people are going to respond to, to treatment or rehab? I think over time, yeah. It, it, as with any type of medicine, it continues to improve. Sports medicine, I think, because we're on the forefront of you know the news and you see it, you can turn on the television every day, you're going to see sports on TV. That and And I think there are expectations of this player has injury X and they're only going to miss this amount of time. So you're kind of under the gun to make sure that that happens. But also you're you're wanting to try to make sure that the player doesn't re-injure himself and now he's out longer or, you know, that he does something that adversely affects his career. Like to me, that's that's one of the things that, that keeps me up at night is to think that, um, you know, that there's something that a player has done with his injury or coming back from his rehabilitation that is that has the potential to cause him, you know, the loss of being able to play, which in, in a professional hockey player's career, that's his money making, you know, that's his, that's his income earning. You know, if I, you know, if I worked on somebody who laid bricks or, or, you know, put down carpeting or was a car, you know, carpenter or something, and I adversely affected their performance that they could make money, you know, that's what keeps me up. So for for the players, it's you're constantly thinking about how how can I get them back as safely and quickly as possible. Um, again, because it, it is a business, and they're, every game that they miss is is money out of our ownership's pocket. Um, you know, the players have guaranteed contracts, so they do get paid when they're injured. It's not, not like the NFL um, where they a player was injured and there's an injury buyout, and you never see that player again. Mm-hmm. We we need to get that player back healthy, and we need to get him back playing to the level that he can participate at. Strength training has changed so much, even since I first started playing mm-hmm. 14 years ago as a professional. But I'm going to lay one on you here, and I want to see how you feel about it. Do mm-hmm. you think that strength training has had positive, negative, maybe nothing impact on injuries in the game, whether there's been more or less more severe? Do you think it's made any difference at all? I think I think what happens is, I, I, I do agree with you. I think that strength training in hockey specifically, um, that there are things that we've done in the past that maybe have led to injuries. Um, you look at the stationary bike. Uh, when I first started, we had a stationary bike for every single player. That was a Mike Keenan um, that we that we had, and everybody had to have their own bike. He was a big VO2 <clears> test guy. Big VO2 test yeah. guy and, and a big bike after the games and whatnot. So we used to have, you know, everybody would get off to take their gear off and get in the gym and get on a bike and pedal. Hollywood, and I, too? Yeah. Hollywood? Oh, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, well, maybe not so much Holly, but, okay. yeah, pretty much <laughs> almost everybody. <Yeah. clears throat> but... Um, and then we started to see all these abdominal injuries, um, which are you know are called sports hernias. There's a bunch of different names for them, but um, the collective term is, is a, a sports hernia. And we started to see a large amount of these sports hernias come about, and we kind of try, we were trying to figure out why these sports hernias were happening. And uh, Dr. Michael Brunt, who practices here in St. Louis, um, is one of the the preeminent uh, surgeons who takes care of this problem. And Dr. Brunt and I have published some paper, uh, some chapters and books and papers looking at uh, abdominal injuries and rehabilitation from abdominal injuries. And what, what, we've, what we surmised is and what we think is that the amount of biking that hockey players were doing was leading to this, these abdominal injuries. And teams started to move away from the biking. Um, and we've seen a decrease in abdominal injuries due to the um, the, the players not biking as much as they used to. Now, I can't, I can tell you that anecdotally. I don't have any scientific proof to that. But when we started to decrease the amount of bike riding that the players did, we saw a decrease in the abdominal injuries. Um, and when you query the players who do have the abdominal problems, <clears throat> some of the times it's from, yeah, they've been doing an excessive amount of biking, or they were trying to lose weight and they did a lot of biking, or they were working on footwork and foot speed and they were doing a lot of biking and they had this problem so i think that to to answer your question i think some of the things that we've done in the past have led to some injuries and i think strength and conditioning is an area that keeps improving like medicine every year and the more people train a certain way uh, we start to see different injuries with you know the way people train whether it's crossfit or whether it's you know um high intensity training or whatever, I think if you do it in moderation and you do it, um, you know, where where you're cautious about 
overuse injuries. I think that you can you can decrease the injuries. The other thing we've seen too is the the practices that we've had in the past. Again, I go harken back to Mike Keenan era. <clears throat> Mike was one of the first coaches that I ever worked with that we only practiced 20 minutes or so. And I think that that led his team to not have as many injuries. We've, I've had worked with coaches where we've practiced 45 minutes or more and it's been high intense and we've seen more injuries. So I think getting quality practice time, um, and that's where Chief is, is phenomenal with our team. I, he, he understands what our team needs at that particular time and is able to perform that in practice. But we're not grinding guys on the ice just to grind guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not trying to work a paycheck out of them by having them skate sideboards. You know, we're, we're being smart with the amount of energy that we're, we're using on the ice and we're allowing players to recover. You know, that's the other big thing that that's, I think strength and conditioning is looking at is, is the recovery aspect of players. When you get a goalie on the table versus a regular player on the table, when you're working on their body, can you tell biomechanically and the way that their muscles have grown and, and developed that they're a goaltender strictly from having them there? Do you think that it's that different of a, of a training and a, and a building of the strength? Or are our bodies much more similar to players than I would even think? I think the goaltender bodies nowadays are much more similar to outskaters. Um, I think when I first started 24 years ago in the NHL, our goaltenders weren't as um, they weren't as physical specimen as they are now. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the, with training and and the evolution of off ice conditioning and such. Um, but I would I would say that play goaltenders now in the NHL um, are in as good a shape as outskaters were 20 years ago, if not more. And the other thing, too, is that we, we see everybody comes in in shape now. Right. Like, no one uses training camp uh, to get into shape. Everybody maintains a level of, of high condition through the whole 12 months. We used to see a lot of guys back in, in you know, 20-plus years that would – season was over and they would step off the conditioning wagon – and, you know, basically have to recondition themselves at training camp. Those days are over with, though. Didn't uh, Keenan kick Fear out one year? Yeah, Grant, Grant came in a little <laughs> bit. And then uh, had to bring in Bob Kersey, I think. A little right? bit heavy, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, Bobby was brought in to uh, – Bobby was actually brought in to keep an eye on Essa Tikkanen. So when when uh, Essa had a shoulder injury and uh, – we needed somebody to keep Tiki in line, so the, the ultimate um, irony of that though is I think Grant went and played what eighty games that year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and Grant is you know again, arguably the best goaltender I've ever worked with, um, and has just a phenomenal personality. Great person to hang out with and be with. Um, he would come in every day, and we'd sit and have a coffee. And uh, I mean, I just I learned so much from Grant. He's such a great person, and and you know he he, uh, he he's. He actually was in pretty decent shape. It's just at that particular time, he'd let himself go right before camp. And <laughs> Mike was a little upset with his with his weight. And Mike was a little ahead of his time with that kind of stuff. He, he was very, um, very motivated to make sure the players were in good in the best condition possible. When you get a guy coming in either as a free agent or on a trade, do you guys do your homework in advance? And then if you if you get through around the league and all of a sudden you find out that this guy's kind of been labeled as a high maintenance guy. Do you just take a deep breath and, and start clean and hope that that's not the case? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, well, well, high maintenance guys are, are, it's interesting. You know, um, high maintenance guys know what they like and that's what you just have to realize is that they, they, they know what they like and they know what it takes for them to, to be successful. You can't be a high maintenance guy and not be a, a successful if you're not successful and you're high maintenance, you're not in this league for very long. So high maintenance guys are usually very successful, uh, meaning that they've either won the Stanley Cup or they've got an Olympic gold medal or they've got some sort of winning pedigree. But you can't be high maintenance and not be a winner. I mean, that just, that those two things don't, don't play. Um, as far as trades and stuff, we'll, a lot of times, sometimes we'll, we will talk to our colleagues before a trade. Sometimes we'll almost all the time we'll talk to them after the trade just to kind of get an idea of what we're, you know, what the player is looking for, what their expectations are, if they've got any prior injuries, um, you know, different equipment that they might need, um, day-to-day stuff that, that they need to have performed in order for them to perform well. There is a little bit of a uh, of teamwork aspect to that with other trainers throughout the league yep. though, right? I yep. mean, I'm sure even during games, 
there has to be protocol amongst you guys. If something goes wrong on the ice, oh, yeah. I'm going to cover for you. How does that work? Do you talk before games, summertime? Yeah. You know, when well, do you figure those things out? Yeah, it's interesting. Not a lot of people know that the the athletic trainers in in the NHL and basically all of pro hockey are are pretty much all friends. I mean, we're all colleagues. We're all um, your P Hats members, correct? Yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah P Hats, which is a professional hockey athletic trainer society, is a is a professional group that we all belong to. And um, we all we have a meeting every year, an annual meeting. This year it was in Austin, Texas. Good place to be. Great place to Big be. Big fan of Austin. Yep. Love lot, my time there. A lot of fun there. It yep. was a great city. That The hospitality was phenomenal. Um, Best street tacos you can find anywhere. I yep. didn't partake, but I'm, I'm told that. <laughs> Digressing um, here. I yeah. could go forever about no, Austin. You know, Austin, it, yeah. Austin's <laughs> a great, Austin is a great town. And, and we have a, a, a woman who uh, um, directs our group and – she threw out Austin, and really only a couple of us had been there because there's an American League team right. in that region. Um, and so I'd never been to Austin before, and, and so for me it was great to, to see Austin and, and be in that culture. It was uh, it's definitely someplace I'll, I'll visit again. But we, we meet annually every year, and we've gotten to the point where now the National Hockey League comes to our meetings, the NHLPA comes to our meetings. Um, we have the uh, uh, equipment managers at our meetings uh, we've got all the NHL team physician is at, at our meetings, and we do all of our education there, um, and that's the purpose of it. It's an education society. It's not a union. It's not a you know anything else. It's purely an education society. We we uh, collect uh, funds and we have scholarships and a bunch of other things. But we, this is where we talk about all of our emergency uh, procedures. Uh, we talk about what the latest is, and it's it's strictly a hockey meeting. There's no talk about women's volleyball or you know, what's going on in the world of soccer or football or anything. It's just specifically all the talks are hockey-specific um, medical presentations and strength and conditioning coaches are there too, so there's strength and conditioning uh, presentations. But it's a an avenue for all of us to, to sit, talk, hot stove, uh, be collegial, um, and communicate, uh, collaborate and communicate. And so part of that is, is you know, we have set uh, standards that – everybody's expected to meet and some of those are emergency standards um, other ones are day-to-day standards like if you're coming into my building I you're going to know that these pieces of equipment are going to be available and and um, here's your reference phone numbers all the emergency all your, things you need yeah, yeah all the stuff that you need all the supplies and equipment is is going to be the same in each city that you go to which makes your job easier as an athletic trainer so and and what we do is um, you know again we try to foster as much collegial um, attitude as we can, and we'll go vi- next door and visit. If I'm the home team, I'll come over and visit you uh, as a visiting athletic trainer. Make sure you need anything, check in with you, um, help you get whatever you need to take care of your players. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you, you know the 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 visiting trainer myself battling. The the players are the ones that are going to win the game on the ice, and so. Um, and so there are some tr- young trainers that have to learn this the hard way and the fact that, you know, they, they think it's uh, them versus us. And if I don't help them, you know, we'll win the game. But what happens is, is you know, what goes around comes around and you need help in St. Louis. And, you know, it's something serious. And all of a sudden, you know, you, 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 there's a little quid pro quo that goes on. So or you need that hot dinner reservation or you're not getting yeah, or you it. need yeah. to, you know, you need a chiropractor. <laughs> to see, ticket or, yeah. You need a chiropractor to see your one of your players or you need a, a dermatologist to look at something that has you know, gotten way out of control. And, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, well, you know, maybe that phone call takes a little bit longer if you're, you know, not collegial right. and, and helping each other out. So there, there's a lot of common courtesy to it, right? It's, it's a tremendous amount of common courtesy. And that's what it is. It's it's a matter of us being professionals and working together. And that's what we try to foster with that. So I was I was president of uh, P-HATS uh, Society for a number of years, um, past president. And, and now I'm a member of the Joint Health Safety Committee, the uh, combined committee of the NHL and the NHLPA. And I represent all of PHATS on this committee that makes policy for health and safety for the NHL. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to be on that committee. If there's some great people, um, you know, Bill Daly from the league, Julie mm-hmm. Grand, um, Steve Fear, um, uh, Maria Dennis at the PA, uh, John Rizos is the medical director for the PA, Wynna Maywissa is the medical director from the NHL. And Gary Dorsheimer, it's the physician in, uh, with the Flyers, is the representative for the team doctors. So 
again, we, we set and make policy regarding, you know, everything that happens medically within the National Hockey League. So it's uh, it's a big undertaking and it takes up a lot of time at the at the PHAT. So I wasn't able to get out for the street tacos as I was hoping <laughs> to be able to. Hopefully they catered in a little bit of barbecue. Yeah. You talk about emergencies and I think about your time with the Blues and the First one that came to mind was a really big one, um, and it was Chris Pronger. Right. He was hit by a puck, essentially in the heart, and you'd be much better to walk us through what happened, uh, what the protocol was, how the the rehab went, but it was a really scary moment. And Mm. I want to know from your perspective what that was like, how you process that. Does it kick right into gear? Uh, And when you show up on the scene to know immediately what you need to do, how does that work? Yeah, so we were were playing Detroit uh, at Joe Lewis Arena. And um, Chris was in front of the net, and I, I want to say he was cross-checking somebody, and actually he was getting a delayed penalty. And uh, Miranoff, the defenseman for Detroit, um, shot the puck on, on net. Grant Fuhr was in goal. Um, and Chris took the puck right underneath his shoulder pad. So as the puck came towards him, he kind of lurched up, which raised his shoulder pads up on his shoulders and exposed his chest wall. And he took the puck directly onto his chest wall, kind of right below the or on the left side next to his uh, sternum. And he took two or three steps and he collapsed. At the time, I was on the bench and I saw the play happen and I saw him fall. And I wasn't really sure what it was because I, I thought that he blocked a shot, but I didn't see exactly where he blocked the shot. So I jumped over the boards and ran out to him. And uh, when I got to him, he was on his back and he was uh, he was cyanotic. So his lips were blue. Um, I pulled his eyelid back and looked at his eye because he was unresponsive and his eyes had rolled back, you know, up in his head. <clears throat> and he was totally unresponsive. And that's not like prongs. Um, anybody who knows Chris knows he responds <laughs> quickly in, in situations. So... <laughs> Um, n- normally with a little bit of uh, uh, anger, but uh, so he wa- he wasn't he wasn't mad that he got hit. He was just unresponsive, and again trying to to gauge his responsiveness, I, I took position at his head, um, and because I'd seen him get hit with a puck, I took his helmet off because I, I I knew that he didn't have a head or neck injury that we needed to worry about. Um, but uh, again, he wasn't wearing a visor or, or any kind of facial protection, but took his helmet off and then tried to establish consciousness and he was just turning blue. So his lips became more and more blue. And it was at that point where I started to run through all the things in my head about the emergency procedures. And again, this was during the playoffs. So we travel with our physicians in the playoffs. Uh, Dr. Matt Matava was out with us on that trip and Dr. Um, William Birenbaum was with us on that trip. So in, internal medicine and an orthopedic surgeon. Dr. Berenbaum had come out to the ice and I started to take Chris's pulse at his neck and I couldn't find a pulse. And I was like, well, I must be doing this wrong. So I took a pulse again and there was no pulse. And then it was just, it was like, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm not getting this pulse like this. I'm, I, mean, I know I'm in the right spot. So nothing, you, you don't realize it. The athlete has no pulse. So I'm checking it for a that third. That doesn't seem fathomable, right? Right. Because yeah. it's not something that you would normally, that we don't, we normally don't see. So Dr. Bierenbaum arrives on, on scene and I'm like, we, we've got no pulse. So I check his pulse. Dr. B grabs his wrist, I believe, and is checking for a radial pulse and we've got no pulse. So we we're cutting off his jersey about ready to do CPR. And all of a sudden you can just see that he comes back. And, um, you know, whether it was a a little thump to the chest or whether it was he just somehow he converted and uh, all of a sudden his lips became pink again and his eyes came back and he opened his eyes and was focusing on myself because I was right over his head and reached up and grabbed me. And we basically then put him, um, you know, into onto a gurney and and brought him to the uh, to the. Uh, ambulance. Now, this was before the days of, of AEDs being all mm. over the place. So now, you know, we carry an AED with us wherever we go. This is this is before AEDs. And those are defibrillators. Right. That's what my friend Rich Peverly 
was right. lucky that there was one in the ring for him, or maybe it had been right. mandated previous that effectively yeah. saved his life in Dallas right. or against Columbus one night. Right, and that's that's that was before them. Right. So no one had one of those in the rinks. <clears throat> we didn't travel with one. You basically didn't know what they were because um, they're mandated now. They have now, to be everywhere. Yeah, now they're you mandated. You see them in youth rinks now. Everywhere. You see them in yeah. youth rinks. You can see them in the airports. You can yeah. see them in any kind of public space. And that's one of the things I, I've taught my kids and is to keep an eye to try to take a look and see where all the that equipment is where is the aed in case you ever need it that's a good point for everybody is just to kind of take a look around and know where they're at so that if you do need it you know where to run to to grab it um if we had an aed we probably would have put it on chris there's no question about that um and why he converted we're not really sure but he was diagnosed with commotional cordis by dr barry marin in uh minnesota who's kind of the preeminent uh, expert on commotional cordis um, and Chris, my understanding is one of the few individuals to have been hit in the chest wall, suffer commotional cordis and converted and, and lift. So we were extremely fortunate. The other thing we were fortunate was that there was no AED in the ambulance in Detroit. And if we had needed one, we, there, there wasn't one available. We just would have done old-fashioned CPR and tried to get to Henry Ford Hospital as quick as we could. So there was a lot of things that fell into place on that day. Uh, we're fortunate for Chris's sake that he recovered and uh, recovered quickly. Um, he was followed by uh, Dr. Patricia Cole here in St. Louis, and um, he 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 wanted to play the next game. Like that's the kind of competitor prongs is. Really was like that. Yeah, it's mean, my next shift. No, yeah. you're not playing for a little while. So. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you know, Chris checked out everything. We did a halter monitor on him, and and everything came back to the cardiologist. Uh, you know that they would allow him to play and, and he played. So I, it's one of those situations that, I, you know, the stars aligned that day. Mm. Um, and it was probably because Prongs is such a mean SOB that he wasn't <laughs> going to let things happen. And I, I don't know what, but he, you know, thankfully we had a, a great outcome that day. I can't imagine what went through your head when you showed up and no pulse, anything and completely out of the realm of what you were thinking could have happened. Yeah. I um, didn't expect it. On a much lighter note. Yeah. I'd really like to ask you about the art of running on the ice. Okay. Because fans in St. Louis and fans across the league see you go tearing out there with the towel. Yeah. Very little slippage. Very well, sometimes. What's yeah. what's the key to this? Uh, the key to it is to have a pair of shoes that um, are completely flat on the bottom. Um, Do you wear the spikes? No spikes. Okay. So no. and you have perfected the slide into the player then. <laughs> yeah. So so it's uh, I'll say that at the at the start of the period when the ice is fresh, that's the most difficult time to run on the ice, as you would probably think. And then as the as the period goes on and there's a little bit of snow, then the ice becomes e- really easy to run on. And as long as you have shoes that have a flat, completely flat sole, um, I used to wear a pair of. Um, they were made by a company called, and they were a replica of a 1920 baseball shoe. And it had an absolute flat bottom to it, which was almost like Velcro running on ice. And then, uh, they discontinued making them. I couldn't find any more sizes, uh, pairs of my size. So I switched over to Asics makes a shoe that again has a completely flat bottom to it, almost as flat as this tabletop. And that's what allows you to run on the ice surface. If you run in, in, uh, regular running shoes or any kind of sole that has any kind of ripples to it or whatever, then you're just going to fall. So you need maximum traction. You need maximum traction and, <laughs> and, and, and some knee bend. And does it, does it give you celebrity status around town? No. <laughs> Come on. So many people have to recognize you out every now and then. No, I, I, I don't get recognized that, that almost ever. Well, you can keep so, a nice little profile. Yeah, I, nice. I, can, I can stay under the radar, which is fine. <laughs> if you had to give advice to anybody who was looking to get into your field as a profession, what would it be? Uh, it would be to first take a look and see what what your family life is like. What, what do you what do you want to have? Do you want to have a family? Do you want to have kids? Uh, what does your spouse or future spouse think of your being an athletic trainer? Um, that's, that's the one regret that I have, uh, in doing the job that I do is the, the missed time for my family. Um, and if you've got a family support system that will allow you to do, to, to miss time, um, then, then I would say go for it. 
Like, but if you're somebody who's really family centric and you're, you know, you really want to spend time with your kids and that part's really important to you, then being a tr- an athletic trainer in the National Hockey League is not where you want to be. Um, we have a high divorce rate amongst my colleagues. Uh, my wife is Kathy is phenomenal. She's a she went to school as an athletic trainer. Um, realized that there couldn't be two athletic trainers in the family, so she went back and got her nursing degree. Um, and she, but she understands the time commitment that's involved with working, doing what I love to do, and she allows me to do that, which is great. Um, and then my my two boys, who we alluded to earlier, Casey um, and Ted, um, I missed everything with those guys. Like I, I didn't, I didn't hit a single, you know, school play. Um, I missed all of their road games because they both played hockey and baseball. I missed all their road games. I never went on the road with them. Um, I was the practice dad. I would show up and take them to practice, and that was about it. And caught a couple of games when they would play at home. But they were they were the ones who suffered probably the most of my job and me not being around at all to see any of their events. So that that's the toughest part. That's the part that I tell people who you know because I've got I get student athletic trainers that walk up and they're like, Hey, I want your job. And I'm like, you can have my job if you think you can handle a family life. Cause that's the most difficult part of my job. Need fair warning for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of schooling for it, best route for someone to take is just, uh, is to be involved in, in athletics. Um, if you're in high school, um, you know, and you have an athletic trainer at your school, shadow them, help them out. Uh, then the uh, NATA, the National Athletic Trainers Association, has a listing of, of schools that offer uh, education programs to become an athletic trainer and uh, to make sure that you go through uh, the correct program so that you're able to sit for the national certification exam and, and become an athletic, you know, certified athletic trainer through the NATA. And then uh, if, if your interest is in, in a particular sport, it's you know, networking with people in that sport, getting to know them, meet, go to meetings, talk to them, sit down. You know, uh, a lot of the hires that I've done uh, in bringing people into the profession are, you know, people that I, I know that they're good athletic trainers because they went through good programs, but I know that they're better people. And so, you know, that's really, you know, how are you as a person? Are you able to communicate? Are you able to, you know, are you going to be uh, upset that you've got long working hours? Are you going to you know, I, those those are not the people that we're looking for in the profession. We're looking for people that um, can kind of come in and be seamless with the hockey hockey culture and and uh, are able to work with everybody in the organization. So that's that's really my best um, advice for anybody. Um, and then also look at some sub certifications. Uh, be, you know, there's a strength there's strength coach certifications. Uh, there's opportunities to become uh, licensed massage therapists, which our profession has moved towards as more hands-on therapy than modalities or you know uh, ultrasound and stim kind of uh, uh, rehabilitative techniques. So find you know not only just become an athlete trainer, but also get some other uh, subspecialties. ART you mentioned earlier is a good one. I've got that, um, and you're always continuing to learn. The day that you stop. You think that you know everything? That's the day you're you're out of the profession. Well, Ray, you're now a Stanley Cup champion. So what's next still, for you? What are you looking forward to in the in the next several months, years here? You know, I, I that's a great question because um, you still get a huge smile on your face when yeah, you hear those words. As well, you should. <laughs> yeah, I still can't believe it. I mean, I, I was sitting watching uh, television last night, and there was a commercial that came on, and Doc Emmerich's voice was in, and it's a. It's an advertisement for the shirts and the hats and, you know, Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues. And just to hear Doc say that's unbelievable. I did have goals set when I first started uh, in athletic training, and I've, I've ticked off all the boxes. So um, I guess it's to win another cup, you know. it's my, my former colleague with Dallas Stars, Dave Supernaut, he won the cup in 99. And we were doing the Jerry Bruckheimer uh, uh, Celebrity Tournament in Vegas. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, what's it like to win the cup? And he goes, he goes, he goes, it's unbelievable. And he, and I concur. And he said, I want to win it every year, but I also want everybody to, to give everybody the opportunity to win it once because it's just an unbelievable feeling. And, you know, when, when you lift the cup over your head, 
when I did in Boston, the weight that fell off my back, you, you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't see it on TV, but there was a huge weight on my back that fell off. And it was, uh, like I said, it was one of the last boxes that I wanted to have ticked. I wanted to work the Olympics, and I was fortunate to do two of those. I wanted to work the World Juniors. I was fortunate to do a number of those. I was, wanted to do a World Championship. I was fortunate enough through USA Hockey to do a bunch of those. I did uh, two Canada Cup tournaments, one being Canada Cup in 91 and then the, the latest, the World Cup. So, I mean, I've had I've had lots of opportunity through USA Hockey and all my friends at USA Hockey who are, are phenomenal. Uh, the late uh, Jim Johansson was was phenomenal to me. Great um, guy. Great guy. I love, J, I love JJ. Um, and I think about him a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've been given a lot of opportunity to work with a lot of great people. You know, I work with Bob Johnson. I work with... Herb Brooks, I've worked with, uh, you know, Joel Quenville, uh, Mike Keenan, uh, Ken Hitchcock, um, you know, Chief. Um, I, I've had, I've, I've worked with some of the best coaches, some Hall of Fame coaches, Hall of Fame managers, um, you know, and, and a ton of Hall of Fame players. So I'm, I'm really fortunate. One last question. Yeah. Will you keep Gloria on your playlist for the rest <laughs> of your life? <laughs> Probably I'm going to have to. Uh, I mean, the, the story, <laughs> my daughter wants it on hers now because she heard it so often. The, the, the story of, of, you know, again, it's one of those things, those little cogs that just kept, you know, just fell into place. Um, you know, we talked about Dave Alexander earlier. We, you know, uh, Layla Anderson, uh, the Gloria oh, yeah. um, song. Um, there's so many little things that, that have to fall. All these little cogs have to fall into the machine in order for the machine to start moving. But then when they do, it, it just the machine takes off on its own, and that's really what happens during the, the finals. Is it it takes on a life of its own, and you really just you're, you're just helping the machine move and, and enjoying the ride, and that's that's what I've been doing, just trying to enjoy the ride. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.